0: We're going to focus on Proverbs this morning, and um, we're going to look at Solomon and the Proverbs just a little bit. There's a a verse I'm I'm, I'm focused on, and I'll tell you where this lesson came from. A a buddy of mine was going to Nicaragua to do some work down there, and he and I and and a couple of guys, we kind of get together and discuss, uh, we'll call them passage projects together and just kind of share ideas. And I tell you, I, I really like what we're going to look at today. This is one of those passages that just kind of captures me a little bit. So I'm gonna I'm just start off by reading in Proverbs chapter one, and I'll have it on the board. I'll, I try to have as many of the verses when I'm presenting as I can on, on the on the screen, rather. Not that's not the board, is it? This is the board. I know stuff. Is anybody else not awake yet this morning? Because I guarantee I'm not. All right. So here we go. Proverbs. Let's read this whole thing. And uh, as we start, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction and in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the naive. To the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure. The words of the wise and the real, riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This morning, I'm, I'm going to focus on verse 7, really the first half of verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. Now, I like this verse. I don't know about you. It's one of those kind of catchy phrases that we that we read in the Bible a lot, right? And I read it a lot, and I'm like, yeah, you can almost chant it. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, you know? I get all, and then I think about that. And, I, and, and when we started looking at this to the guys, we were like, huh? You know? Because at first glance, you, it seems plausible, but then you kind of want to know what that means, don't you? The beginning, or, or the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So what does that mean? How do you balance, in my mind, this is the question that entered my mind first. How do you balance the concept of the fear of the Lord with the concept of the God of love? I, I kind of Andy Stanley says that when he studies the Bible, he'll go ahead and read a passage until he bumps up against something. I kind of like that. Then he reads it again, and if he bumps up against it again, then he knows he has something he can learn from, right? I think that's, a, that's an interesting way to look at that. I definitely bump up on Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that first half of it. It stops and makes me think, because why should it be the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge? Now, one of the last times that i spoke spoken here, we, we, we discussed Matthew chapter 11, and I, and I shared with you a Bible study tool that Cliff and I have kind of been working on and we looked at one pass, uh, one little aspect of that, and it was the concept of, of mood. And you look at, you know, the uh, the concept of whether the mood is a declarative statement or an imperative statement. Do you remember any bit of that? Um, you know, is it a command type of statement or is he declaring something? And we looked in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, "Come to me, take my yoke and uh, learn from me." And, and the thing I the thing I like about that particular tool is, in that passage, it showed me that learn from me concept. And I talked about drafting animals and stuff like that. I love finding these little hidden jewels, and so I always like to share a little bit more. Every time I try to present a passage, I like to to share the tool that really captures my attention in it. Today, I'm going to share another little study tool that we use that uh, uh, Cliff and I have been kind of working on. It's the concept of observation, okay? It's really the first step of Bible study that's going beyond just mere reading it, okay? Observation is one of those simple things you can do to unlock some of those little things that are in the Bible. And here's the really cool part about observation. You can't do it wrong, okay? Uh, it's just what you observe. It, uh, no one's going to grade you on your observations. I remember I took a an introduction, a master's level introduction to the Old Testament class out at Oklahoma Christian by a guy by the name of Dr. Glenn Pemberton. Pretty sharp dude, you know, working on a translation of the Old Testament. Guy's worked with some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I believe, at one time. He, he knows the Old Testament, right? And so... I observed this class, so I didn't get a grade. Okay, which was a really good thing when we got into this thing because you know I don't know how you would have a full time. If I would have gotten a grade in that class, you know they give A, B, C's, and D. You ever notice they don't give an E? Why is that? I don't understand that. But uh, it's A, B, C, D, F. I would have got like a Q or an R in this class. It would it was so hard. And, but cool thing is I observed in that class, and so I didn't get a grade. So that's one of the really cool parts about this feature, is that. When you observe in the Bible, you're just reading and looking for the four to five things that you see in this passage that you think would be helpful for the meaning you find in it. And so here's what I noticed about my observations in, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The first seven book verses of this book seem to me to be the prologue to the entire book, if you read it, you know, when you look at it. It's kind of setting everything up. But the prologue seems to be me to be uh, kind of broken into two parts. The first section is the first six verses, um, and it's all one sentence. That's another little tip that, that Cliff's really taught me a lot about is that if you just pay attention to the punctuation in a passage, it'll it'll give you meaning. It'll direct you towards the meaning you're looking for. So this first six verses of this thing is one complete verse, Um the first six verses seem to summarize the purpose of the entire book. And, and you kind of look at it. Here's what, here's what I kind of noticed, all right? I observe a lot of action in these first six verses, right? To know, to know wisdom and instruction. What's some of the other ones? To what? To discern, to receive. There's a lot of things we receive there, right? And then what else? To give. And then what, what's another one? To hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will what? And to understand. So when I see what see how observation works? Nothing wrong with that. It's a great little tool. There's a whole lot of little things that we could dig into right there just by doing mere observation. And again, you don't want to go and find everything on every word that will drive you, you know, crazy. All right. Because you'll go down rabbit holes. I've done that so many times, and Cliff kind of instructs me on that. He says, you know, find those four or five things that you think are the most important things in a verse to understanding it and i think those those action words in the first six verses are important i also observed when i when i read over this a number of times that there are a lot of different people that are affected by these action words aren't there who, what do we have in here the first one is to give prudence to who to the naive right all right um, to the to the youth we got knowledge and discretion a wise man will hear and what so see how these action words kind of bounce off of each other? And then I bumped into verse 7, and it inter- inter- interacts interestingly with the first six verses. Here's what I noticed, okay? It, first of all, it's, it's always a good thing when you're studying passages to determine the genre of the material we're looking at, okay? That helps us in understanding, too. It's not, um, in this particular case, what kind of genre is the literature of Proverbs? Poetry, right? Okay, as opposed to, like Matthew 11 I talked about before, which uh, last time I was up here, that's a narrative, right? So we apply the narrative of the story of Jesus differently than we would the flowing nature of Solomon's poetry here. Um, I, I, I respond to it differently. Okay, I, in the verse, first six verses, I notice that all of these action words are kind of summed up into one focus. And to me, that word is knowledge. Um, But here's the interesting part to me. The action words of the first six verses, this is all part of observation, the action words of the first six verses of Proverbs and all the people they affect cannot begin the journey of knowledge until something begins. What is that? The fear of the Lord. It appears to me that verse seven then is the pivotal point or the starting line, if you will, to the entire book of Proverbs. Proverbs. It's, it's more than a first step, isn't it? It seems to me that all of the verses in the rest of Proverbs seem to hinge on this single principle. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So as I observe, it kind of was pretty obvious to me. I need to understand what that means, don't I? I, I need to understand that's, that's one of the four or five things that I really needed to focus on in my mind, and I had a lot of fun looking at this. Now, fear, let's look at that, that word fear. What does that mean? It does, you know. So many times I hear people say that it only means respect, you know, and, and I've learned, I looked into the word. Now, look, when I look into the word in the Greek and all the tools out, it's totally different than when Terry Fakes and Cliff Sanders, because they know this stuff, right? I look at it strictly as emphasis. I don't think it's just, Respect and all. I think there's some fear because there's words like in there that talk about exceeding fear or uh, horrific kind of words like that are used in in the language, especially when you look at all the words that are tied to it. And I tried to I try to find the the way the word is used in the meaning in the passage we had. So I don't know that it's that respect. I think respect is part of it, but I think there's some true fear in there too. And that was the interesting part to me as I looked into it. Reverence, yes, that's definitely one. Reverence, awe, uh, dreadful, exceedingly, fearfulness, and then respect. And every one of those words were used in that definition. And again, I'm not trying to be some type of Hebrew expert here. I said Greek a minute ago. I'm actually in the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrew, <laughs> see, I don't know any of it, right? So here, here we go. So here's here's what I looked at, okay? Why would Solomon make this comment? These are the questions I ask myself, okay? and. and and let me go to one other thing about fear. It kind of occurred to me, and this is just my own thinking here. How do we see fear in our society? It's a negative, isn't it? But the way fear is presented in this particular case, it's a definite positive, if not an outright strength. And we're gonna look into that a little bit. So the question is, why did Solomon write this? Did Solomon understand the principle of the fear of the Lord? And did he have experience with it And did that fear help him, or did it hurt him? Or, you know, what impact did it have on him? So to do that, I I went to 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, And I'm going to look at verses 5 through 9 here. And I'm I'm just going to read through this. I want you to kind of listen to this, all right? I'm going 5 through 9? Yes. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon could have asked for anything. I mean, God appears to basically offer him a blank check at that time, doesn't he? God says, "Ask me what you wish me to give you." So I imagined when I was reading that a young man sitting there, and of all the things he could have asked for, I I, I know what I was like when I was. Uh, <laughs> was that? <A> <laughs> Absolutely, man. <laughs> Ferrari comes in the in the mix there, you know. And and you know, I, I guarantee I'd have tried. Uh, I'd like to ask for four other things. That would have been the first thing I'd ask for, you know. But uh, ask me for the one thing, you know, he would have corrected that. So. Of all the things he could have asked for, why did he ask for discernment? Is it possible, this is just my, my, my position on this, is it possible that Solomon was fearful in leading God's people? It seems to me that he kind of understands that intense responsibility that God has put before him. Um, so in, was this fear positive for Solomon or was it negative? And so what, you, what I want to do is I want to read, continue reading in the passage. I think this is really interesting. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked for this and not for the hot car, <laughs> thanks for yourself, right? Long life, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the lives of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall there one like you arise after you. I have also given what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways and keep my, uh, keeping my statutes and commandment as your father, David, walked, then I will prolong your days. Was the fear positive or negative in his life? It appears to me, Then again, this is just my looking at this observation and reading the, the context of the passage from uh, of, of Solomon's life, okay? This is kind of one of the things I do. Looking at the historical aspect of it. Remember, Bible study can be broken into two things, grammatical or historical issues. And once you understand that, you have a pathway to go figure out what you want to understand, all right? So it appears to me that the fear of the Lord caused Solomon to ask for the right things in his life. That was a cool little thought when that popped in my head. That was a great little lesson for me personally, is that the fear of the Lord caused Solomon to ask God for the right things in his life. Because then it occurred to me, maybe, what's the opposite of that? If I don't have the fear of the Lord in my life, What am I asking for? Am I asking for the right things? I'm not saying we're asking for the wrong things all the time. This is definitely not one of those lessons where, you know, the seven habits of more fear in your life is definitely not. That didn't even make sense to me. Actually, the point of this this lesson to me is just, it's kind of like, hmm, you know? Because it it was really fun to go through and look at this from my vantage point um, about how does fear position me in my relationship with God because it's the beginning of knowledge, right? So great comment. Um, all right, so let's keep going here. Um, again, that, that application question was really interesting to me as I thought about that is if I don't possess the fear of, of, of the Lord or the fear of the, the stove or anything else, right, then there's kind of a, a repercussion on the other side of that. Could I be asking for better things in my life? That was the thing I wanted to look at. Are there better ways for me to be positioning when I speak to God that's based upon a fear that grants me knowledge? That's where I went with all this. All right, so that's just a little bit on the fear question, but, but a question still remains. I mean, and it almost seems kind of weird to ask this question, but what about the fear, of, what about the Lord do we fear? And to me, as I was looking through this information, it kind of came up in my mind that there's we fear two ways. We fear his presence, and we fear his absence. I mean, part of the, the fear of the presence, um, if you think about when God actually appears, what is the action that's usually associated with that? When he actually appears before somebody, or the angel of the Lord appears before somebody? Fall on their face, Fall on their face right? I mean, remember, Abraham was, what, 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him, and he falls down on his face. Let me tell you, when I'm 99 years old, and I fall down on my face, and it's not an accident, okay, it's going to be a special event in my life, okay? So I kind of thought, I thought about that. Um, Rick Warren, in some of the Lee Strobel material, made this comment. He said that we would actually be, uh, who, who, who's the word awe earlier? Awe. He said that we would probably, his thought was that we might be very much in of adam and eve if they actually appeared before us because of the progression of sin if we're able to see them now i thought that was an interesting comment when he said it because the fear that's part of that that awesomeness and that fear of the lord we're going to talk about that a little bit all right so the apostle paul in in romans chapter 11 verse 22 says um, behold then i don't have this one on on the screens it says behold then the kindness and severity of god to to those who fell severity but to you god's kindness If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. According to Paul, this is what I kind of looked at, is that there seems to be a severity and a kindness to the presence of God. And so um, I looked in the Old Testament for examples of this, and it took to me one of my favorite um, stories in the Old Testament, the the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right, everybody knows that story, right? Um, I think I've told this story before about my oldest daughter. Uh, glad to have my youngest daughter here today. It's her 20th birthday on Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, no more teenager. Yeah, I love that. So, uh, the but our, my oldest daughter, when she was uh, studying about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they'd bring the kids up to the, the front of the class and uh, they'd ask, or front of the church, as the church service started, and they'd say, What'd you learn about? And she said, Well, I learned about Shadrach, Meshach, and the billy goat. And uh, I thought that was great. Yeah, but, so, and it's really hard for me to say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego since that point in time because I love that story so much. But let's look at how the fear of the Lord affected these three men. This is just kind of a continuation of, this fear, of the concept of the fear of the Lord. Remember, it's not the seven steps. It's kind of the hmm, you know, kind of thing. So let's set up the beginning of the story. King Nebuchadnezzar had built this golden image. We all know about it. It's a big 90-foot-tall golden image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down for it. So I'm going to read from uh, Daniel 3. Oh, that's not it. There it is. Yeah, here it is. This is the verses, I'll tell you real quick. Why do I keep taking my reading glasses off when I need to read the notes? There we go. Daniel 3, verses 13 through 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, would not bow down, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready at that, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, and all these other things, all right, to fall down, because some of them I can't pronounce, all right, and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And I love this part. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> okay. I think they know one. What you, yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Love that. Love that story. Now, first, did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a real reason to fear King Nebuchadnezzar? That's part of the historical part of Bible study that we can kind of learn, right? Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, I call him old King Neb, he didn't didn't make idols. Thoughts and comments. That was not part of his. He was known for being a very exact and extremely ruthless king. Um, So, and especially when he was wanting to make a point. And he wanted to make a point with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in my opinion, because they challenged his kingship, didn't they? When they said, hey, we're not going to give you an answer on this, we're not going to bow down. So they positioned him as the leader. Let's read the verse in Proverbs again. The, the fear of the Lord, that's that verse we're looking at, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. And so when I, when I read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that verse in Proverbs starts to make a little bit more sense to me, okay? First of all, this is a real story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I always have to remind myself, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Bible, it seems like a really cool story, like, you know, uh, gone with the wind. Where did I get that? Um, uh, you know, uh, what was the one where we used to that we read in all the schools? Where the red fern grows. Remember that one? All right. All right. So, Big Dan and Little Ann, all that stuff. All right. But sometimes when I read these Old Testament stories, I can think of them that they're great little stories like that. But this, I have to remind myself, you know, that they faced a very real king and a very real hot, fiery furnace. And we all wonder. How did they do that? I mean, this is one of those kind of problems in life that, again, doesn't seem, it's so big, this is such a big struggle or problem in their life that it doesn't seem real. I mean, you ever been in a problem like that? You just, you almost get surreal when you start thinking about it, when they get so impending. That's the kind of, of uh, issue that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are facing here. How do, they, how do they face that? And all they have to do is bow down. They don't even have to mean it. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar says, if you bow down to this, very well. It's okay, we'll go back to the way things are. When I consider the fiery furnace, it becomes obvious to me when I think about it, right? That the fear of God was stronger in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego than anything else they would face in their life. And again, that's a great lesson for me. Very strong in my life. I'll say it again. The fear of the Lord was stronger than anything else they would face. So did the, did the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did the principle hold true? It was the beginning of knowledge, right? The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Let's read verses 16 through 18. Again, okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. I love this part. If it be so, our God whom we... Serve is able to deliver us from the f- furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, <laughs> now that's amazing, isn't it? They're, they're going to face the furnace no, either way, whether God answers that prayer or God doesn't answer that prayer. So I've got to go back to my note here. The fear of God gave them the understanding, maybe, is that possible that the fear of the lord gave them the understanding to face the toughest of life's challenges that's the again that's the lesson for me it sits on me and i think about that personally do i fear things in my life more than i fear god are there are there things in my life that i'm more scared of health things financial things anything that i face or do i fear god more because that gives, it seems to give them, how could they stand up there and say that to King Nebuchadnezzar without some kind of knowledge in their mind? You know, if they didn't have a strong relationship and an understanding and a fear of the Lord, I'm thinking maybe they would bow down before the golden image. I'm, I'm not judging that, okay? I'm just thinking, I mean, how else can you stand right, when you're right there before those, those doors of that furnace, he did as hot as King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar said, he did it seven times, right? That's a way of saying it's as hot as it's going to get, right? You're standing before that, those doors, and you don't have that fear of God as the strongest thing in your life. How do you stand there and not say, you know, I think I'll just bow down real quick. I don't have to mean it anyway. That's That was an interesting lesson for me. Um kind of running out of time here. I'm going to skip the, a little part of this because I want to switch to the fear of God's presence. All right. And this part was extremely impactful to me. Remember we talked, I said, I think the fear of God kind of presents two ways, the fear of his presence and the fear of his absence. Okay. Now in the story of Gideon in Judges chapter six, Gideon, and his people, you know, I got to teach a lesson. I'm going to say something about Gideon. It's my favorite one of the whole, I can't do it. All right. Just going to have to go with me. All right. So, um, For seven years in that story, the Israelites struggled. Everything they tried to do failed. Everything they tried to do failed for seven years. God was so silent that he seemed to be absent to them. Um, Listen in Judges 6. I'll read it just quickly. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Hear hear how it kind of feels like they, they kind of feel the absence? Gideon and his people felt like God had abandoned them because for seven years he was silent. And maybe you've experienced a time in your life when God uh, was absent. But here's my point God's silence does not equate to his absence. Uh, God was with Gideon and the Israelites, and he's with us today, even in our failures. He's there. The silence does not equate to his absence. The absence of God is something completely different. The only thing that caused my Lord to cry out on the cross was when he felt the absence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only perfect person, the Son of God, a part of God, separated from God If you think about Jesus' life, he handled all of the mistreatment in his life, didn't he? He handled all the accusations. He handled all the lies. He handled all of the false charges that were presented against him. He even endured the incredible physical torture to his body prior to the cross. And the hymn says that that I sang growing up my whole life is that he could have called how many angels? 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But how's the end of that? But he died alone for you and me. Through all of this, the only time that our Savior cried out was at the point at which he felt the absence of God. And the reason this is so very poignant to me is that it occurred to me as as I was talking with my friends about this is that we have never experienced the absence of God in our lives. I will grant you that just like Gideon in our lives, it seems like that sometimes, but the absence of God is something completely different. Jesus, uh, Jesus did experience it when God turned and and let Jesus die on the cross for us. And anything that causes my Lord to cry out, you know, should should petrify me. And uh, I submit that it should be a driving force. So the absence of God should create fear. The thought, the con- just the concept of that should create fear in life. But it's different than his silence. So, kind of set all that up. The absent, the fear of the Lord through absence and his presence. So what's the so what? This is the application part of Bible study right here. The last comment I have is how do we go about fearing the Lord? I mean, again, it's not the seven steps to more fear in your life doesn't make sense, but it's more like, what does this fear, how does it present itself? And believe it or not, Solomon addresses this for us. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived or ever will live, according to God's own words in the Bible, right? understood the concept of fear, and as I study his words in Proverbs, it seems that Solomon realized that maybe you and I, all of us, would kind of need some help understanding this concept of what it means to fear the Lord. So he gave us Proverbs chapter two. I'm gonna set it up real quick, all right? Imagine Solomon gathering his sons around him, Right? And he's gonna instruct them on the ways of wisdom that was given to him by God. Because remember, God said, nobody's gonna be as wise as you, right? Um, Can you imagine what that conversation was like, first of all? I mean, I, the way I visualize it, I see Solomon kind of sitting up a little bit and his sons gather, even though they're adults, they're gathered around him. And they're, and they're attentive because the wisest man in the world is about to relay his best stuff to him. Listen to him. Listen to the words of Solomon as he almost pleads with them concerning the fear of the Lord. Listen to it. This is from, for this, oh, wait, wrong one. Here it is. My sons, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then what? You will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, then these words are the beginning of fear. Look at the action words that Solomon gives us. He says, he says for us, if you accept my words and store my commands, if you turn your ear and apply your heart to understanding, if you call out and you cry aloud, and if you look for it for silver and search for it like for hidden treasure, there's there's one visual I can give you, I'll, I'll share with you about my grandfather when he was passing away. And my grandfather was my really, I called him my grand buddy because we were, we were friends. I mean, he taught me to fish. He, he put me behind a, a one-ton gin pole truck, four-speed gin pole truck when I was 11 years old and taught me how to drive, you know. And uh, he, he was my buddy, but when it, when it was his time, he was passing. Um, we, I was in the hospital with him because I wanted to be there, you know, because as he went. And so we sat and talked, um, and it's this turn your ear to wisdom thing. This is the visual I think granddad gave me in those last moments of his life. For two days, my grandfather, before he actually passed on, did not move. He had that position where he was lying in the hospital bed. His jaw was open and his, and his and his breathing was very belabored. And I was sat there with him and I was holding his hand and I was telling him, you know, Granddad, it's okay. You know, it's okay to go on. And uh, again, the only time he moved was when the nurses came in and moved his body a little bit. And uh, it was hard. It was a hard time. But I, w- I was glad to be there for him, you know. But I'll never forget, it was a Saturday night. Well, it was actually a Sunday morning. It was about, about I've been there all night. It's about 5 o'clock in the morning, something like that. And I look over, and my grandfather is moving his head. Now, mind you, he hasn't moved or made any semblance of anything for at least two straight days. And before that, it was pretty limited, okay? But for two straight days, he was gone. He just didn't know it yet. But I look over at him, and he is turning his head. And I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I jumped up real quick, and I was like, yeah, granted, you know, I didn't know what he needed or I didn't know what he was hurting and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I, I just happened to turn around and look at the television screen. And my dad is on the television. My dad used to direct the music for a program called In Search of the Lord's Way with Mac Lyon. And he directed the music on that. And um, you know how on those in the hospital, the, the sound doesn't come out of the television, does it? It comes out of that little box. And what I finally realized was that that was what my grandfather was turning his ear to. He was The last movements of my grandfather, and I will never forget this, were him straining. He was literally straining to turn his ear to that music to so he could hear it. And I, I took it, and I turned it up a little bit, and he settled down. It was the last time he ever moved. That impressed on me. So when I read about Solomon saying, turn your ear to wisdom, that sets heavily on my heart because I remember my grandfather and the gift he gave me. In his last days. Solomon says, These are the actions that instill in us the fear of the Lord. And what happens after that is then and only then. Look at all these actions. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. And then the last part, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. It made me understand that when we seek him, we better understand who God is and interact better with this concept of fear in our lives as it has its ability to to increase our knowledge. And it kind of made sense to me when I thought about it, because if you ever talked to somebody that didn't have any fear of God whatsoever in their life, and they didn't have his knowledge, did they? And I don't mean that to cut them down. It's not, I mean, that's kind of my, my the importance that we have is to relay that to them and to help people understand, but some people just don't. They don't have a fear of the Lord, and they don't have the knowledge of him. Um, so here's my application I understand and totally believe in the grace and mercy afforded me by Jesus Christ. I know this is what saves me. But what if I use both the fear of the presence and absence of God to filter the actions of my life? If you want to do something that will stop you in your tracks, it's you know. listen, uh, this is not intended to beat us down. This is intended to move us forward and upward, this comment, okay? But if you want something that will stop you, ask yourself if a specific action displays a proper fear of God in your life. I tried that for about a week and a half and I really don't want to do it anymore because I got to do some more study in my life. So the first thing is, is what if I used that filter? But then the second thing is, if what if I this week began to seek God the way that Solomon teaches me to accept the words and store up, store up those commands, I love that one too, and turning my ear and ear and applying my heart and calling out was the last time I called out and cried aloud to God for insight and looked for it like it was silver? That's all part of this application and, and observation. Look for it like it's the, the silver that or, or hidden treasure in our lives. It's a, I just wonder what that would do for my knowledge of God. I just kind of wonder. So I'm going to close in a prayer, and I'm going to use the words of Solomon in a prayer as we close out for today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, we thank you for this church, and we thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us, Father. And Father, we thank you for the words of Solomon. May we accept your words, Father, and may we store up your commands. I pray for each person in this room that each of us in the coming week can turn our ear toward wisdom and apply our hearts to you, Father. Father, we pray that you will hear us and that we We will call out, as we call out to you and as we cry aloud from this world, instill in us, Lord, the desire to seek you as the hidden treasure that you truly are. And then please, Father, bless us with the understanding of how to use this fear as we come to know you better and develop our relationship with you, Father. We pray this through the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.